This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Plague Ship by Andre Norton. Chapter 5 The Perilous Seas. The Gorp hunters straggled through the grassed forest in family groups and the Terran saw that the Enterprise had forced another uneasy truce upon the district, for there were representatives from more than just Paf's own clan. All the Salariki were young, and the parties babbled together in excitement. It was plain that this hunt, staged upon a large scale, was not only a means of revenge upon a hated enemy, but also a sporting event of outstanding prestige. Now the grass-trees began to show ragged gaps, open spaces between their clumps, until the forest was only scattered groups, and the party the Terrans had joined walked along a trail cloaked in knee-high, yellow-red fern-growth. Most of the Salariki carried unlit torches, some having four or five bundled together, as if gorp-hunting must be done after nightfall and it was fairly late in the afternoon before they topped a rise of ground and looked out upon one of Sargal's seas. The water was a dull metallic gray, broken by great swaths of purple, as if an artist had slapped a brush of color across it in a hit-or-miss fashion. Sand of the red grit, lightened by the golden flecks which glittered in the sun, stretched to the edge of the wavelets, breaking with only languor on the curve of earth. The bulk of islands arose in serried ranks farther out, crowned with grass-trees all rippling under the sea-wind. They came out upon the beach where one of the purple patches touched the shore, and Dane noted that it left a scummy deposit there. The Terrans went on to the water's edge. Where it was clear of the purple stuff they could get a murky glimpse of the bottom, but the scum hid long stretches of shoreline and outer wave, and Dane wondered if the gorp used it as a protective covering. For the moment the Salariki made no move toward the sea which was to be their hunting ground. Instead, the youngest members of the party, some of whom were adolescents not yet entitled to wear the claw knife of manhood, spread out along the shore and set industriously to gathering driftwood, which they brought back to heap on the sand. Dane, watching that harvest, caught sight of a smoothly polished length. He called Weeks' attention to the water-rounded cylinder. The oiler's eyes lighted as he stooped to pick it up. Where the other sticks were from grass-trees, this was something else and among the bleached pile it had the vividness of flame, for it was a strident scarlet. Weeks turned it over in his hands, running his fingers lovingly across its perfect grain. Even in its crude state it had beauty. He stopped the Salaric who had just brought in another armload of wood. "'This is what?' he spoke the trade lingo haltingly. The native gazed somewhat indifferently at the branch. "'Tansil,' he answered. "'It grows on the islands.' 
He made a vague gesture to include a good section of the Western Sea before he hurried away. Weeks now went along the tide-line on his own quest, Dane trailing him. At the end of a quarter-hour, when a hail summoned them back to the side of the now-lighted fire, they had some ten pieces of the tansil wood between them. The finds ranged from a three-foot section some four inches in diameter to some slender twigs no larger than a writing stilo, but all with high polish, the warm flame coloring. Weeks lashed them together before he joined the group where Groft was outlining the technique of gorp-hunting for the benefit of the Terrans. Some two hundred feet away, a reef, often awash and stained with the purple scum, angled out into the sea in a long curve, which formed a natural breakwater. This was the point of attack. But first the purple film must be removed so that land and sea-dwellers could meet on common terms. The fire blazed up, eating hungrily into the driftwood. And from it ran the young Salariki with lighted brands, which at the water's edge they whirled about their heads and then hurled out onto the purple patches. Fire arose from the water and ran with frantic speed across the crests of the low waves, while the Salariki coughed and buried their noses in their perfume boxes for the wind drove shoreward an overpowering stench. Where the cleansing fire had run on the water there was now only the natural metallic gray of the liquid. The cover was gone. Older Salariki warriors were choosing torches from those they had brought, doing it with care. Groft approached the Terrans, carrying four. "'These you use now.' "'What for?' Dane wondered. The sky was still sunlit. He held the torch watching to see how the Sadariki made use of them. Groft led the advance, running lightly out along the reef with agile and graceful leaps to cross the breaks where the sea hurled in over the rock. And after him followed the other natives, each with a lighted torch in hand, the torch they hunkered down to plant firmly in some crevice of the rock before taking a stand beside that beacon. The Terrans, less sure-footed in the space-boots, picked their way along the same path, wet with spray, wrinkling their noses against the lingering puffs of the stench from the water. Following the example of the Sadariki, they faced seaward. But Dane did not know what to watch for. Cam had left only the vaguest general descriptions of Gorp, and beyond the fact that they were reptilian, intelligent, and dangerous, the Terrans had not been briefed. Once the warriors had taken up their stand along the reef, the younger Salariki went into action once more. Lighting more torches at the fire, they ran out along the line of their elders and flung their torches as far as they could hurl them into the sea outside the reef. The gray steel of the water was now yellow with the reflection of the sinking sun. But that ochre and gold became more brilliant yet as the torches of the Sadariki set blazing up far-floating patches of scum. Dane shielded his eyes against the glare and tried to watch the water, with some idea that this move must be provocation, and what they hunted would so be driven into view. He held his sleep-rod ready, just as the Sadarik on his right had claw-knife in one hand, and in the other, open and waiting, the net intended to entangle and hold fast a victim, 
binding him for the kill. But it was at the far tip of the barrier, the post of greatest honor which Groft had jealously claimed as his, that the Gorp struck first. At a wild shout of defiance, Dane half turned to see the Salaric noble cast his net at sea level and then stab viciously with a well-practiced blow. When he raised his arm for a second thrust, greenish ichor ran from the blade down his wrist. Dane! Thorson's head jerked around. He saw the V of ripples headed straight for the rocks where he balanced. But he'd have to wait for a better target than a moving wedge of water. Instinctively, he half crouched in the stance of an embattled spaceman, wishing now that he did have a blaster. Neither of the Salariki stationed on either side of him made any move, and he guessed that was hunt etiquette. Each man was supposed to face and kill the monster that challenged him without assistance. And upon his skill during the next few minutes might rest the reputation of all Terrans as far as the natives were concerned. There was a shadow outline beneath the surface of the metallic water now, but he could not see well because of the distortion of the murky waves. He must wait until he was sure. Then the thing gave a spurt, and only inches beyond the toes of his boots a nightmare creature sprang halfway out of the water, pincher claws as long as his own arms snapping at him. Without being conscious of his act, he pressed the stud of the sleep-rod, aiming in the general direction of that horror from the sea. But to his utter amazement the creature did not fall supinely back into watery world from which it had emerged. Instead, those claws snapped again, this time scraping across the top of Dane's foot, leaving a furrow in material the keenest of knives could not have scored. "'Give it to him!' That was Rip shouting encouragement from his own place farther along the reef. Dane pressed the firing stud again and again. The claws waved as the monstrosity slavered from a gaping frog's mouth a mouth which was fanged with a shark's vicious teeth. It was almost wholly out of the water, creeping on a crab's many legs, with a clawed upper limb reaching for him, when suddenly it stopped, its huge head turning from side to side in the sheltering carapace of scaled natural armor. It settled back as if crouching for a final spring, a spring which would push Dane into the ocean. But that attack never came. Instead, the gorp drew in upon itself until it resembled an unwieldy ball of indestructible armor, and there it remained. The Salariki on either side of Dane let out cries of triumph and edged closer. One of them twirled his net suggestively seeing that the Terran lacked what was to him an essential piece of hunting equipment. They nodded vigorously in agreement, and the tough strands swung out in a skillful cast which engulfed the motionless creature on the reef. But it was so protected by its scales that there was no opening for the claw-knife. They had made a capture, but they could not make a kill. However, the Salariki were highly delighted and several abandoned their post to help the boys drag the monster ashore, where it was pinned down to the beach by stakes driven through the edges of the net. 
but the hunting party was given little time to gloat over this stroke of fortune. The Gorp killed by Groft and the one stunned by Dane were only the vanguard of an army, and within moments the hunters on the reef were confronted by trouble armed with slashing claws and diabolic fighting ability. The battle was anything but one-sided. Dane whirled as the air was rent by a shriek of agony, just in time to see one of the Salariki, already torn by the claws of a gorp, being drawn under the water. It was too late to save the hunter, though Dane, balanced on the very edge of the reef, aimed a beam into the bloody waves. If the gorp was affected by this attack, he could not tell, for both attacker and victim could no longer be seen. But Ollie had better luck in rescuing the Salaric who shared his particular section of reef, and the native, gashed and spurting blood from a wound in his thigh, was hauled to safety. While the gorp, coiling too slowly under the Terran ray, was literally hewn to pieces by the revengeful knives of the hunter's kin. The fight broke into a series of individual duels, carried on now by the light of the torches as the evening closed in. The last of the purple patches had burned away to nothing. Dane crouched by his standard torch, his eyes fastened on the sea, watching for an ominous V of ripples, betraying another gorp on its way to launch against the rock barrier. There was such wild confusion along that line of water-sprayed rocks that he had no idea of how the engagement was going. But so far the gorp showed no signs of having had enough. Dane was shaken out of his absorption by another scream. One, he was sure, which had not come from any Sadariki throat. He got to his feet. Rip was stationed four men beyond him. Yes, the tall astrogator apprentice was there, outlined against the torch flare. Ollie? No, there was the assistant engineer. Weeks? But Weeks was picking his way back along the reef toward the shore, haste expressed in every line of his figure. The scream sounded for a second time, freezing the Terrans. "'Come back!' That was Weeks, gesturing violently at the shore and something floundering in the protective circle of the reef. The younger Salariki, who had been feeding the fire, were now clustered at the water's edge. Ollie ran and with a leap covered the last few feet, landing reckless knee-deep in the waves. Dane saw light strike on his rod as he swung it in a wide arc to center on the struggle churning the water into foam. A third scream died to a moan, and then the Salariki dashed into the sea, their nets spread, drawing back with them through the surf a dark and now quiet mass. The fact that at least one gorp had managed to get on the inner side of the reef made an impression on the rest of the native hunters. After an uncertain minute or two, Groft gave the signal to withdraw, which they did with grisly trophies. Dane counted seven gorp bodies, which did not include the prisoner ashore. And more might have slid into the sea to die. On the other hand, two Salariki were dead. One had been drawn into the sea before Dane's eyes, and at least one was badly wounded. But who had been pulled down in the shallows, 
someone sent out from the Queen with a message? Dane raced back along the reef, not waiting to pull up his torch, and before he reached the shore Rip was overtaking him. But the man who lay groaning on the sand was not from the Queen. The torn and blood-stained tunic covering his lacerated shoulders had the I.S. badge. Ollie was already at work on his wounds, giving temporary first aid from his belt kit. To all their questions he was stubbornly silent. Either he couldn't or wouldn't answer. In the end they helped the Salariki rig three stretchers. On one, the largest, the captive Gorp, still curled in a round carapace-protected ball, was bound with the net. The second supported the wounded Salarik clansman, and on to the third the Terrans lifted the I.S. man. "'We'll deliver him to his own ship,' Rip decided. "'He must have tailed us here as a spy.' He asked a passing Salarik as to where they could find the company spacer. "'They might just think we are responsible,' Ollie pointed out. "'But I see your point. If we do pack him back to the Queen and he doesn't make it, they might say that we fired his rockets for him. All right, boys, let's up ship. He doesn't look too good to me." With a torch-bearing Salaric boy as a guide, they hurried along a path taking in turns the burden of the stretcher. Luckily the I.S. ship was even closer to the sea than the Queen, and as they crossed the slagged ground, congealed by the brake-fire, they were trotting. Though the company ship was probably one of the smallest intersolar carried on her rosters, it was a third again as large as the Queen, with part of that third undoubtedly dedicated to extra cargo space. Beside her, their own spacer would seem not only smaller, but battered and worn. But no free trader would have willingly assumed the badges of a company man, not even for the command of such a ship fresh from the cradles of a builder. When a man went up from the training pool for his first assignment, he was sent to the ship where his temperament, training, and abilities best fitted. And those who were designated as free traders would never fit into the pattern of company men. Of late years, the breach between those who lived under the strict parental control of one of the five great galaxy-wide organizations and though still too much of an individual to live any life but that of a half-explorer, half-pioneer, which was the free traders, had widened alarmingly. Antagonism flared, rivalry was strong. But as yet the great companies themselves were at polite cold war with one another for the big plums of the scattered systems. The free traders took the crumbs, and there was not much disputing save in cases such as had arisen on Sargal, when suddenly crumbs assumed the guise of very rich cake, rich and large enough to attract a giant. The party from the Queen was given a peremptory challenge as they reached the other ship's ramp. Rip demanded to see the officer of the watch, and then told the story of the wounded man as far as they knew it. The Izzy was hurried aboard, nor did his shipmates give a word of thanks. "'That's that,' Rip shrugged. "'Let's go before they slam the hat so hard they'll rock their ship off her fins.' "'Polite, aren't they?' asked Weeks mildly. "'What do you expect of Izzy's?' Ollie wanted to know. "'To them, 
Free traders are just rim-planet trash. Let's report back where we are appreciated." They took a shortcut which brought them back to the Queen, and they filed up her ramp to make their report to the captain. But they were not yet satisfied with Groft and his gorp-slayers. No Celeric appeared for trade in the morning, surprising the Terrans. Instead, a second delegation, this time of older men and a storm-priest, visited the spacer with an invitation to attend Paff's funeral feast, a rite which would be followed by the formal elevation of Groff to his father's position, now that he had revenged that parent. And from remarks dropped by members of the delegation, it was plain that the bearing of the Terrans who had joined the hunting party was esteemed to have been in the highest accord with Salariki tradition. They drew lots to decide which two must remain with the ship, and the rest perfumed themselves so as to give no offence which might upset their now cordial relations. Again it was mid-afternoon when the Salariki's escort sent to do them honour waited at the edge of the wood, and Mira and Tang saw them off. With a herald booming before them, they travelled the beaten earth road in the opposite direction from the trading centre, off through the forest, until they came to a wide section of several miles which had been rigorously cleared of any vegetation which might give cover to a lurking enemy. In the centre of this was a twelve-foot-high stockade of the bright red burnished wood which had attracted weeks on the shore. Each paling was the trunk of a tree, and it had been sharpened at the top to a wicked point. On the field side was a wide ditch, crossed at the gate by a bridge, the planking of which might be removed at will. And as Dane passed over, he looked down into the moat that was dry. The Salariki did not depend upon water for a defence, but on something else which his experience of the previous night had taught him to respect. There was no mistaking that shade of purple. The highly inflammable scum the hunters had burnt from the top of the waves had been brought inland and lay a greasy blanket some eight feet below. It would only be necessary to toss a torch on that, and the defenders of the stockade would create a wall of fire to baffle any attackers. The Salariki knew how to make the most of their world's natural resources. End of chapter 5